0: The following is a message of First Baptist Richardson. For more information, please visit fbcr.org. So good to be with you this morning. About 10 years ago, this past October, that my father and my brother, my sister and I, had the unfortunate assignment of burying my mother. And I know that many of you in here have buried parents, most of us in this room have, grandparents certainly, brothers, sisters, some of us children. Even if you take away the emotional aspect of burying a loved one, it's still a very, very difficult assignment. Would you agree? And I remember that I I thought that there was one aspect of planning for my mom's service that would be relatively easy, and that would be her tombstone. And yet they wanted to know the size and the color. Uh, They wanted to know the print. The only thing they did not ask us had to do with that tiny dash between the day of my mother's birth and the day of my mother's death. Next slide, please. One day, we'll have one of those. There'll be a birth date. There will be an ending date. If you stop and think about it, our entire life is summed up in one tiny dash. And I I remember looking at my mom's dash and thinking, all of her life summed up by that one tiny dash. It was a little girl, she had polio, her senior prom. day. she married my dad. All of life summed up in one tiny dash. And ladies and gentlemen, whether we get 10 years of life or we get 100 years of life, we all know we just get one, right? And we also know that regardless of how many years God gives us, 10 years or 100, that that dash is very small. The length of it, it's God's business. God, before you were born, knew the number of your days. But what we do with it is our business. I know what some of you are thinking. Well, that's not true, Warren, because our lives are not our own. We've been bought with a price, and I absolutely would agree with that. But ladies and gentlemen, I've lived long enough to see that very few people really think about whether or not the one and only God-given dash that they are given is lived out as God destined it to be. And so this morning, I simply have entitled this message, Defining Your Dash. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the 26th chapter of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 26, Paul is standing in front of the great-grandson of Herod the Great, King Agrippa. King Agrippa's father has already thrown Peter into prison. He has already had James killed. He was a very pagan king. He was also a very perverted king because right now he's living in an incestuous relationship with a sister by the name of Bernice. Paul had absolutely nothing in common with this man. They didn't eat at the same restaurants. They would have been at different country clubs. They lived on different sides of the railroad tracks. Paul had absolutely nothing in common with Agrippa, except he desired that Agrippa like all men and women, come to faith in Christ. And so, Paul's strategy is simple, straightforward. He simply shared his testimony. The 26th chapter of the book of Acts basically is Paul's testimony. Now, I don't know if you've stopped to think about this or not, but people may refute Christianity, they may refute your Bible. They may refute your denomination. They cannot refute the difference that Christ has made in your life. They can't. That's why you writing out your testimony, memorizing your testimony is so important. Because if you look at this book from a 30,000 aerial view, verses two through 11, Paul discusses for Agrippa his days of deception. When his eyes were blinded, to the light of the gospel. Then in verses 12 through 15, he describes his day of deliverance, when God knocked him off his horse, which I said last week is typically how God deals with a type A personality. If you're a type A personality, chances are, at some point in time in your life, God's knocked you off your high horse to get your attention. And then in verses 16 to 18, which is where we're going to camp out today, he discusses for Agrippa his days of definition. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is very important. Most of us right now can go back to a point in time where our eyes were blinded to the light of the gospel. Our days of deception. I'm hoping that most, if not all of us in this room, can go back to our day of deliverance, when the Lord Jesus Christ opened our eyes to the reality of our sin, the reality of who He was, and He drew us to Himself. But I wonder how many of us in the room can go back to the days that God began to define our dash. The purpose for which you were born. Why is that important? Because God never delivers a man or a woman from deception without giving them definition. You understand? Very important. If God has made himself known to you, it was for a purpose that he had in mind. Your dash is your life's mission statement. It's the set of tracks that you were designed to run on. In Acts chapter 13, Dr. Luke wrote these words. When David served the purpose of God in his generation, he fell asleep and he underwent decay. You and I were not created for the next generation. We were not a part of the previous generation. God has placed us in this generation to affect our culture as salt and light living amongst it. Do you believe that? That's why we are here. Very, very important even though so many people misunderstand. The horrific aspect of Acts chapter 13, 36 is not that David died, just like today. The horror is not that we die, it's that we go through our entire lives and never live. We never live. You say, Warren, that's the dumbest thing anybody could say. Look in this room, it's full of living people. Maybe. Maybe. Hopefully, but just because you're taking up space and breathing does not mean that you are living and fulfilling what God created you to fulfill. Do you understand that? It's very important that all of us get a handle on that because when we walk down the street every day, we are meeting left and right dead men and dead women walking. No concept of living out the dash that God created them to live out. And so beginning in verse 16, Jesus shares with him the activity of his life, or you might put in parentheses the word purpose. Jesus said to him, Paul, get up and stand on your feet. Ladies and gentlemen, the call of God is always to stand and to serve. It is not to sit and to soak and to sour. you understand that? Do not evaluate your church solely on the numbers of people who come and sit in a pew, but evaluate your church based on changed lives, who are standing and living God as salt and light beyond these walls. That's the primary activity that God called him to. I had a man the other day, he said, well, how does a man know when his mission is complete on earth? I said, okay, ask yourself two questions. Number one, is your heart still beating? If the answer is yes, move to question number two. Is your primary residence a cemetery? If the answer is no, your mission's not complete. Now, you may not walk as fast, you may not see as well, you may not get around, but as long as you are breathing, there is a kingdom purpose in why God still has you here. I don't know what that is. He does. He does. He has a purpose for all of his children. Now, finding this Area of life that God wants us to live in doesn't mean that you're just simply busy. And I want you to listen to me. There's a lot of busy people. I'm sure there may be a 95-year-old man in this room or a 2-year-old child in this room who's not really busy. Everybody in this room is busy, right? We're all busy. So I'm not talking about you being busy. Because a lot of busy people never fulfill God's plan for their life. I'm not talking about working for God. I'm talking about joining God, working with God, the Spirit of God in and through me, working out His plan and purpose for my life. Jesus said, Father, I have glorified you. Well, how did He glorify the Father? He answers that. The second half of John 17, He says, by accomplishing the work that you have given me. There's a definite article there. He didn't say, I've accomplished what you wanted me to do by just doing work for you, just healing or or touching people or casting out demons. He said, I've glorified you by accomplishing the work that you have given me to do. Folks, do you know what the work is for you? Because if you know the Lord, you have a work that God has created you to fulfill. I remember when I was four, five, six years old, my little brother was three years younger. We often went to visit my great grandfather. My great grandfather had a chicken farm. I mean, he had chickens everywhere. And so we would pull up, and I was probably five or six, my brother was two or three, and he would say, Boys, why don't y'all go out to the chicken coop and bring in a couple of chickens? Because I knew every time we went to his house, that's what we were going to have, right? I didn't have to act. We never had steak at his house. Never had salmon. It was always chicken. So we would take off, and we would run, and we'd go out behind that, and we would just just chase chickens for an hour, it seemed like. We, We would chase the chickens. We would corner the chickens. We would dive on the chickens. We never caught a chicken. We never caught a chicken. Not once. My great-grandfather would come out. I mean, the man, he could barely walk. He'd say, I'll be right back, boys. And the next thing I know, he comes back, and he's got these two chickens, and the, the head is here, and he's got the other chicken by the head here, and he begins to spin the chickens. Now, don't write me a nasty email. This is not my story. It's my great-grandfather. He's been in heaven a long time. He doesn't care, okay? So he spins these chickens, then he goes, the body goes off from the head. Now, there's a reason why I'm telling you that story. Just stay with me, okay? I know many of you love chickens, and it's your pet chicken, but but stay with me. It has a spiritual point. So... The point is, when those chickens went up, they would fly across the back of his chicken coop, and they would hit up against the fence. But you know the darndest thing? Those chickens went crazy. They started flapping their wings. They started doing somersaults. They just went nuts all over the chicken house. They were the most active hens in the hen house, but they were dead. So understand that just because you're busy, or I'm busy, doesn't mean I am not dead. Do you understand that? And So Jesus said, there are two activities, Paul, that I'm calling you to, and he he lists them here. He said, get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose, I appear to you to appoint you. See, God never appears to a man. He never appears to a woman without appointing them to a specific task very, very easy and uh, important to understand. And then he said, I've appeared to you appoint you. It's interesting, the word appoint means to place in one's hand beforehand. You know what that means? That means before Paul was a twinkle in his mother's eye, God already destined what he wanted him to be and to do. And the first word that he uses here, and I talked about this briefly last week, is that of a minister The word that he uses here is the word for under rower or servant. I mentioned last week that many of the Roman ships had levels. The lowest level was the under rower. That's the word that Jesus uses here. Poor ventilation, poor lighting, all the human waste of the other floors of the slaves would fall to the bottom. It's the lowest form of slave on the ship. And Jesus said to him, Paul, that is your primary calling, my friend. To not only be a slave to me, but a slave, a servant to the Gentile nations. Paul never lost sight of that. And unfortunately, as I said last week, there's often so much arrogance in the body of Christ because we have lost sight of the ore. We all enjoy the concept of being called servant leaders. We just don't want anybody treating us like one. He said, I've called you to be a servant. Second of all, he said, I've, I've called you to be a speaker. He said, not only a minister, but a witness. And the word that Jesus uses here, literally, is the word what we get, it's the word we use for martyr. Now, most of the time when we think of a martyr, what do we think of? Someone dying for their faith, right? That's only a part of what the word martyr means. In its broadest sense, it means to speak of that which you've seen and heard. You stop and let that sink in just for a moment. Our dash is defined as we communicate the glory of God to a fallen and broken and unregenerate world. Do you understand that, ladies and gentlemen? If God has touched your heart and brought you to himself, he commissioned you to communicate his glory to the world that you live in. And I think a lot of us sometimes forget that God has called us to build relationships with lost people. Did you know it's sad that only about 5% of evangelical Christians, 5% of evangelical Christians ever lead someone to faith in Jesus, 5%. If right now I were in my 70s, 80s, 90s, I'd never let anybody to Jesus, every day I would say, oh God, do not let me die until I have had the opportunity by your power, by your grace to see someone come to faith in Christ." Through the testimony that you breathe life in through me. A speaker. Then he gives him the audience. Number two, he gives him the audience that he will primarily minister to. He said, In rescuing you from the Jewish people and for the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Now, most of us believe that the Gentiles would have been Paul's primary audience. I submit to you that the Gentiles were Paul's secondary audience. His primary audience was to God, to an audience of one. Do you remember what God said of Samuel? God said, I'm going to raise up for myself a priest that will do all that's in my heart and mind. You and I will only be effective with our secondary audience when God begins to be our primary audience. Do you understand that? Does that make sense? Because the only way you're effective with your secondary audience is to be in love, to be consumed with your primary audience, which is God. In other words, it is out of my love for him that that love spills over into that secondary audience. Here's my question. What's your secondary audience? Who are the group of people that God has called you to minister to? Children, it could be youth, it could be singles, it could be senior adults, it it could be a variety of things, or different people groups. But ladies and gentlemen, as long as you and I still have breath, there is a secondary audience that God has created us and called us to work with and work to. The Christian life is not only missional, it's incarnational. When I say missional, I think there are a number of churches who misunderstand missions. Because I've known churches before that see missions, well, they they give to missions, they may have a missions program, they may go on mission trips. But missions is seen as a program. Did you know that missions in the New Testament is never described as a program, It's it's, it's described as a lifestyle? Do you understand? Missions is not a way of doing certain things, ladies and gentlemen, it's a certain way of doing everything. Every single thing about your life should be missional in nature. Everything. Missions is not just something that God has set aside a few people to do. I was talking to Ron today. Ron, you can't pay enough people in this church to, to reach this area, let alone the world. You have to have people that understand missions is not a program, it's a lifestyle, it's a certain way of doing everything. You see the difference? It's missional, but it's also incarnational, meaning that like Christ, we live as flesh and blood in the time period and in the culture that God's placed us. God didn't place you somewhere else. He placed you here to be salt and light in your Jerusalem, your Judea, your Samaria, your uttermost parts of the earth. And so for Paul, he said, I'm going to accomplish two things through you. And I don't want us to miss this. The church cannot miss this. Look at verse 18. He said, Paul, I'm going to open you. I'm going to use you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who've been sanctified by faith in me. So here's what he's saying. Very important. This is the, this is the church. He's saying, Paul, I'm inviting you to be a part of the salvation process, son. I'm going to use you as a lighthouse. You understand? This church exists for many reasons, but it has got to remember that God has placed it here as a lighthouse. You understand that? Which doesn't mean we just open the doors and say, y'all come in if you wish. It means that we are pursuing people throughout our community and inviting them. You know, there are 14 million people who say they would be in church today if someone they loved and trusted would simply invite them. 14 million. So he says, I'm going to use you in the salvation process. I'm going to let you join me as the Holy Spirit works through you in speaking my word and drawing men and women to myself. Now, I want you to understand, because a lot of people don't understand this about evangelism. Do you understand that evangelism is not selling Jesus? Do you all understand that? You ever been to a large corporation? Is the sales team very different than the marketing team? When I ask y'all a question, don't just stare at me. I just need to know. Some of y'all know the answer to this. When you walk into a big corporation, is the sales team different than the marketing team? Yes. Do y'all ever speak in here? It's okay. They're different. The skill sets are different. God hasn't called us to sales. He's called us to advertising. To simply tell the world the difference that Jesus has made in our life and why they need to give their life to Him. He said, I'm gonna use you in the salvation process. Then He says, I'm also gonna use you in the sanctification process. He says, as an inheritance among those who've been sanctified by faith in Me. So, in other words, He uses the church, He uses us as individuals in the salvation process, that's the lighthouse. But he also uses us in the sanctification process, which is the process of God the Father making us more like God the Son, which is a greenhouse. So do you understand the two reasons for which the church must exist today? To be a lighthouse to the unredeemed? To be a greenhouse to the redeemed? I was so pumped today to see the people that had gone through this D4. I'd, I'd like more information. It sounds super exciting. It's a discipleship ministry, I'm assuming, right? <clears throat> I want to know why you would not think that that's appropriate for you. I guarantee you when you made that when you made that announcement, somebody here thought that's for somebody else. That's not me. That's not me. Do you remember when the, one of the last things that Jesus said before he left was go and make disciples, right? right. Thank you. I, I just wanted to make sure that I, I was not off. I took some uh, Benadryl this morning. I got a stopped up. note, so maybe I'm delirious. Yes. <laughs> one of the last things he says, go and And make disciples. The only command in the Great Commission is the making of disciples. Right? Now, if I were to go and ask my wife, hey honey, can I borrow a pair of your scissors? And I had a pair of scissors and I decided I want to walk out among you and ask you, can I cut the Great Commission out of your Bible? Just a couple of verses. Would anybody in here you open to that right thank you I'm glad no but I want to ask you something you tell me which is worse dear church to cut it out of the Bible or to live our lives as though it doesn't exist Because don't both of those roads lead to the same conclusion? That is, we do absolutely nothing. We're to be a lighthouse for the unredeemed, a greenhouse to the redeemed. And I think the church, quite honestly, has got to evaluate every single thing it does in light of those two objectives. Is this thing that we're planning on spending a lot of money Are we hoping to see new people come to know Christ through it? Is this a chance for us to disciple our people? I don't know if y'all are feeling this or not, but I feel like it's like God's pushed the fast forward button in the world right now. Do y'all sense that? And I really don't think that the world is falling apart. I think God is putting things together for the return of his son. But we've got to be about our, our daddy's business. have to I want you to imagine that you're six years old your dad wakes you up on a does does that camera go over here I didn't even ask that before but I'm going anyway Uh, this um, I, I just want you to imagine you're six seven years old little boy little girl your dad gets you out of bed on a Saturday morning hey let's get up and spend some time together you're thinking oh we're going fishing are we going to go eat donuts And your dad hands you a paint can. And he goes out and he says, son, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and I want you to paint the front door. I want you to paint the front door. And I've got to go to the store and I've got to get some more paint. And I'm expecting by the time I get back, that front door is going to be painted. Okay, dad. So I have my paintbrush and I begin the process of painting my front door. But after a while, I noticed that there's crevices in the door and there's cracks in the door and it's hard. It's not easy. And and so I I find myself thinking, man, this is a lot harder than I thought it was gonna be. So I'm I'm gonna do something a little different. I walk over to the front window of the house and I decide that's what I'm gonna paint. Oh my goodness, it's so much easier. The paint just glides on so much easier, there's no crevices on the window. And so I do this, and when I, my dad gets back, he pulls in the, in the driveway. I wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer growing up, <clears throat> but I could tell when my dad was ticked. For one thing, his arms were crossed, he had this look of disgust, and he calls me by my middle name, which means I am in deep yogurt. And so I said, well, dad, look, when you left, you told me to paint the door, but it was hard, daddy. It's really, really hard. So I decided I was going to paint the window and look, dad, I didn't finish one door, but I did finish three windows. (laughs) There's only one problem, folks. Painting windows is not what my daddy told me to do. He was very specific. If the church is going to make a kingdom difference in its culture during its generation, it must be obedient to the commands of our father. Because the last thing I want, and I'm sure the last thing you want, is to get to the very end of my life. Saying, look, Daddy, look, I did this only to hear Daddy say, but I told you to do that. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray today with all of my heart. That we would be obedient in what you have asked us to do so many churches have become everything except what you created them to be which is a lighthouse and a greenhouse so many have gotten away in our community from the preaching of the word so many have lost a heart for lost people so many Have believed that disciple making was something for someone else, not them. You were very specific what you wanted the church to do when you left. And I just pray today, God, that you'd remove any blinders from our eyes, that you would break our heart for the lost, that you would give us a hunger to pour our lives into those younger believers who desperately need spiritual growth. And I pray this for one reason. I don't ask it for the glory of this church or the men and women who make up this church, but I ask it for the glory of the Lord Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.